18, verse 1, we read, And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted that Amalek did what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both men and women, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Talayim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they come, came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites, and Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lamb and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleating of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. And Samuel said to Saul, Stop! I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what's evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Am Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, 
Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, He has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, "I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me, that I may bow before the Lord." And Samuel said to Saul, "I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel." As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, "The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you." And also, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. And he said, "I have sinned. Yet honor me now before the elders of my people, and before Israel, and return with me, that I may bow before the Lord your God." So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. But in verse thirty-five. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. This is the word of God. Just going to do something.、Uh, so, welcome, <laughs> welcome everyone、uh, to Watermark. Just really exciting to actually see some of your faces on the screen. Great to see Hui Lin and, and Jesse and Victoria and、um, Dwight earlier. Great to see you. I know in this time, Zoom can be difficult to concentrate. It can be difficult to focus. But my prayer is actually just as Jeremy shared earlier on that actually we take. This season, not as a season to kind of、uh, wish away, but actually to really pursue God and to really seek to say, God, who is the person or the people that you're placing on my heart that I can be praying for in Watermark, that I can be sending a text, that I can be encouraging at this time, because we really need to be a community that's helping point each other to Jesus,、uh, even in this period. So let me just pray for us as we get into God's Word together. Father, just want to thank you that you are a gracious God. Thank you that you are God who speaks to us. Thank you, the God who knows us. Thank you, the God who has not left us by ourselves, but you are a God who comes to us again and again and again, who calls us back to yourself. Thank you that you are a kind of God who is not distant, but actually wants deep relationship with us. And I pray this morning as we. Hear from your word, and we hear about Saul's life and David's life. We pray that God, would you, would you make us people after your own heart? Would you make us those who really know what it means to follow you? 
I pray, Lord, particularly for those in this season, whether it's with kids schooling online or whether it's um, just the holidays coming up and Chinese New Year not being all that we wish it was going to be. Lord, I pray that whatever the circumstances that we find ourselves in, you'd help us to realign our hearts, place them back to you and realize that you are enough for us. So we love you. Speak to us, we pray in Jesus name. Amen. Great. Boris Johnson is the Prime Minister of, uh, of the UK. I don't think I've ever started a sermon like that before, uh, but he is, and he's right in the middle of uh, something people are calling Partygate, uh, a scandal that um, uh, he and uh, his ministers and his office uh, have seemingly broken potentially some of the, the own lockdown, COVID lockdown rules that they uh, created themselves. And so uh, right in the midst of this, um, it's a very t tense situation for him. And his leadership uh, manifesto, or his leadership mantra, if you like, is never apologize, never explain. And yet, uh, about just a few weeks ago, Boris Johnson came out to uh, uh, apologize uh, as the, the heat of, uh, of anger, public anger, rose. And here's what he said. He said, I want to apologize because um, I carry full responsibility for what took place. But nobody told me this was an event that was against the rules. Now, I don't know about you, and I'm not being political here, but that to me doesn't sound like an apology. Um, that's what we call a non-apology. You know, it's, uh, it's like, I'm sorry you were offended um, kind of apology. You know, and in our, in our culture of trial by social media, Almost every single day, it seems, uh, there's either some sports personality, a celebrity, a business, uh, which comes out and apologizes um, uh, in some way uh, to kind of remove the heat of the, the, the anger or the circumstances that are around them to just be able to carry on with what they're doing. It's the, I'm sorry we didn't do as well as we could have kind of answer, which I often wonder, are those actually true apologies or are they non-apologies? Because it's not just politicians and it's not just celebrities. Actually, each one of us can be masters at some time or another of the non-apology. And so this passage that we're looking at today is actually all about a non-apology. You see, we've been, uh, it's actually about, and we've titled it, How Not to Repent. Because uh, this, we've been looking at the book of Samuel, and Samuel has been all about how God turns upside down the way we look at things. Whereas we look at the outward appearance, we look at how religious someone looks, how good someone looks, like Eli or Eli's sons on the outside, or tall and handsome like Saul is. But God looks at the inside of our hearts. And God has given the, the people of Israel the king that they wanted to fight their battles. And he's actually led them just in the last couple of chapters in great victory. And everything has seemed to be going well. But there are signs that not everything is right. Because Saul is a people pleaser. And he's already uh, sacrificed and, and um, uh, gone against the command of God one time because of his fear of the people. And today we're going to look at another incident where we see um, what's really going on in the heart of Saul. And so we're going to look in three uh, different sections. We're going to look at breaking God's heart. We're going to look at defending our pride and then turning our hearts in true repentance. 
Okay, so let's start off with breaking God's heart. So God, uh, and keep uh, looking at the, the chapter in front of you. If you've got your Bible, please have it open so you can look through. But God, uh, through Samuel, comes to Saul and he says this. He says, the Lord has sent me to anoint you king over his people. In other words, he's saying, God has given you, Saul, uh, a responsibility, a stewardship to lead his people, God's people. They're not your people, they're his people, but you are to steward them and lead them to flourishing and to lead them towards God. And then he gives a command. He gives a command. He says, I want you to strike Amalek and I want you to devote them to destruction. I want you to wipe them out and leave nothing left. Now, I don't have time to actually, uh, in this sermon, to go into all the details for that. But actually, for, for some of us, the idea that God actually commands um, the death of a, certain, uh, of a group of people can be very disturbing in many ways. And I feel um, a little disturbed in, in many things. And so if you would like to actually talk a little bit more about that, after the, uh, the service, we're going to have a breakout room where we're going to have a chance for Q&A, where we can actually go into more detail and uh, talk a little bit about this issue. But the main point of this passage is not that. Because the main point of this passage is what Saul and the people do in response. You see, how do they respond? Uh, they respond by destroying everything they think is of a little value. Everything they despise, they get rid of. And then everything they think is good in their eyes, they keep. They despise the Lord's command and take for themselves what they want. Just like Eli's sons a few chapters earlier, just like Adam and Eve do right at the beginning of the Bible story, right at the very heart of sin is this idea of despising what God says and taking for yourself what you think is good in your own eyes. And God's response isn't just kind of a cold or distant, oh, uh, I'll leave you uh, to yourself. It isn't just a, an angry response. It, it's not a kind of, that's it, I've had enough of you, get out. It says here in, um, uh, in verse 11, it says, I regret, that's literally, I'm grieved that I have made Saul king, for he's turned back from following me. You see, this same word of I regret, this I'm grieved, is actually the same word that comes in, in Genesis 6, where um, out of the wickedness of human, human beings, God promises a flood, and it says, the Lord was sorry, was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him, okay? There's an, another emotional word there, grieved him to his heart. In the New Testament, in Mark 3, it says uh, when Jesus looked at the Pharisees who were treating the vulnerable with utter contempt, it says he looked at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. You see, what you see is when God looks at sin, if we put it in human terms, he has mixed emotions. It's always an emotionally painful experience for God because sin breaks God's heart. Because sin breaks loving relationships with God, with each other, with ourselves, and with creation. It breaks everything and it makes him angry. And it also grieves him. You see, self-righteous anger is only filled with anger. Righteous anger is always an emotion which is filled with sadness. So if you want to think about the last time you were angry and you want to decide was it righteous or was it self-righteous, uh, uh, kind of angry towards someone, just think of did you have any sadness towards the person at the same time? 
because that may give you an indication of where your heart was in that point. Because Samuel feels God's heart. And it says, and Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. Do you see, discipleship growing like Jesus is not just about growing in our understanding of the Bible. It's actually growing to emotionally that your heart gets impacted by the same things that impact God's heart. That your heart, when you see your sin, when you see other people's sin, when you see injustice, it breaks your heart for what breaks God's heart. That's when you know that your heart is being changed by God to become more after his own heart. And that's what the whole of Samuel's about, where our hearts are. And you see, the, the, the author now brilliantly contrasts now this, this heart that Samuel has, which is God's heart, towards this situation, uh, towards the sin of Saul, with how Saul himself responds. And so here's where we're going to go and move to not just breaking God's heart, but actually defending your own heart, your own pride. And here we're going to look at uh, uh, Saul. And um, uh, just kind of flow through with me in the text where we're going. You see, what happens in verse 12, it says, um, It was told to Samuel that Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and then he turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal to meet Samuel. Now just think about that mo a monument. Just think about what he's doing. Right at the heart um, of what's going on. Samuel is actually seized behind the scenes of what's happening. Saul wants to honor and exalt himself in the eyes of the people. He's a people pleaser. He craves their respect. That's why he builds his monument. Now, right at the end of the story, the last thing that Saul does, uh, that Saul does, he says this. He says, honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. You see, what is he doing? See, he's actually, uh, what's changed in his heart? Nothing's changed. For Saul, he feels small and insignificant. Samuel says, you were little in your own eyes, in verse 17. But he wants to feel big. He wants others to go, yeah, you're the man. He wants to be able to walk into a room and people go, there's Saul. Wow, what a guy. That's what he wants. Because what people think about him is what drives his own heart. And in the title of a book, when people are big, God is small. And so when he sees Samuel, straight after this, Saul shows us how not to repent and how to defend what you have done. Okay, I'm going to go through four tactics that Saul does to still try and keep face and make himself look good, even though he's honoring himself rather than honoring God. Tactic one, he plays the innocent. Verse 13, he goes, Blessed be you to the Lord. I've performed the commandment of the Lord. Now, Samuel knows like what's going on behind the scenes, but Saul just wants to look good and religious in front of him. Samuel sees through it, and he says this. He says, oh, what then is this bleating of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? In other words, he's saying, I'm hearing one thing from you, Saul, but I'm, my ears are hearing a completely different story. And what he's doing, he's actually confronting Saul with reality. The reality of his sin. And when God confronts you with the reality of your sin, it's never to condemn you. It's always giving you an opportunity to come clean, to come into the light, to come and find freedom and forgiveness and healing. But Saul's face is too important to him. So he moves on to tactic two. 
which is a defensiveness and blame shifting. So Saul says, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Do you see what he's doing? He's blame shifting all the responsibility on to the people now. He says, it's not me, it was them. And it was good intentions after all. It was kind of, no one told me the rules. I was tired, you started it. Samuel's not buying it. Verse 17, he says, but the Lord anointed you king over Israel. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? He's saying, you're responsible, Saul. You're the king. Stop passing the buck, playing the victim. You know, some of us can do that. We can, we can blame shift and play the victim, but godly people own their sin. They don't blame shift and play the victim. That's what Samuel's coming to him again. But Saul's not having any of it. Tactic three, okay? He's gone from uh, just playing innocent. He's gone now to, from blame shifting. Now he wants to highlight all of his good points. He says, verse 20, I have obeyed the Lord, the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission of the Lord that the Lord sent me on. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek. I have devoted the Amalekites to the destruction. He's saying, look at all the good things that I've done. But the people shifting again, took of the spoil, the sheep and the oxen. You know, this is the kind of the marriage defensiveness of, I've done so much for you and you list all the good things you've done, so now you're criticizing me for this? And Saul's had three chances to repent, but instead of owning any of it, he's just been defensive the whole way. Why? Because of his pride, because of that monument that he wants to build to himself, because of his insecurity, because none of us want to be exposed, do we, really, for what's really going on down here. It's scary. You know, an apology, uh, a true repentance always, uh, lays you open to being seen as weak and vulnerable to attack. You know, the, um, the uh, German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, he, uh, he said this, and I, I like this quote. He said, memory says, I did that. Pride replies, I could not have done that. Eventually, memory yields. Do you get what he's saying? He's saying, actually, it's right at heart. Our pride wants us to be exalted. And that's what leads us to defend ourselves so much. It's what's going on with Saul's heart. And Samuel, he sees through the whole thing, and he brings down the hammer blow. He goes like this. He says, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings as sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. Rebellion is the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. He's saying what, what you're doing is idolatry, because you have rejected the word of the Lord. Here's the blow. He has also rejected you from being king. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, all your kind of pretended sacrifice, you know, you can, you can say, oh, I've served this, I've done all this, I've done all this for you, God. But all of that's a smokescreen for this area, this command, where he is in disobedience. And God says, I look with the same disdain on that as I look at witchcraft. He says, because the heart of rebelling against me is the same. 
And interestingly, actually to prove the point, the end of Samuel has Saul actually going to visit a witch, the witch of Endor, which shows where the trajectory of his entire heart is going because he's not willing to repent. You know, we can serve all we like. We can do a ton of great religious things. But if actually we call, God is calling us to obey him in some area and we are, not, we are resisting, we are resisting, we are resisting, God says, I don't care about the other stuff. I'm looking at where your heart is. I'm not looking at the outward. You know, um, Jeremy Tam showed me actually this week, verse 15, 21, 30. Saul actually keeps referring to God as the Lord, your God, Samuel. You see, it's not his God because he is his own God. He's wanting to exalt and honor himself with that monument, with his own honor. And when you do that, there are consequences. Samuel says, your kingship is over because you wanted to be your own king for your own honor, not God's king. Then you will no longer be God's king for his people And you could hear a pin drop. Because Saul knows Samuel speaks God's word. And so he's gone from trying to play the innocent. He's gone from just defending, blame shifting, to try and focus on all the good things he's doing, to then step four, tactic four, a non-apology to avoid consequences. Saul feels the consequences. He feels it at the place which is most precious to his heart, his own honor. And out of fear he goes, I've sinned. For I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now please pardon my sin and come back with me. You see, he he admits the issue. He's a people pleaser. He feared the people. And you know, people pleasers are always obedient people. It's just they obey obey other people's voices, not God's. Because fear can actually make you apologize. But sorry is not enough here because it doesn't turn his heart away from people pleasing because the final thing he says is this. He says, I've sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. You see, it's all about show on the outward when the inward is about his own honor in front of everybody else. I don't know if you... um, can relate to any of that. Uh, I can in my own life. I don't know how you see those tactics work out for you. Let me give you a a very hypothetical uh, situation. Um, So my wife and I, um, we agree that if I'm gonna go out in evening times, I need to let her know uh, beforehand, just in case she needs help with the kids and things like that. And sometimes I forget to do that. And um, when my wife kind of confronts me with why, why I didn't tell her, do you know what I do? Sometimes I say things like, um, I play the innocent. I say, oh, yeah, I did tell you. I did tell you. I'm sure I told you. And then she says, when? And I go, well, um, work was kind of super busy, and uh, I just didn't have the time. But, um, and she then goes, well, so how come you had time to like, watch YouTube or do that other thing that you were doing? And I go, well, listen, I've, like, every other time, like in the last like, three weeks, I've, I've told you, okay? And, and, um, and you didn't tell me the last time you went out. And so, uh, and then she may reply, well, you know, this is actually serious. And so actually maybe until you're gonna, you, you change, maybe I'm, I'm not actually gonna go out to you with that, that important meeting that, that you want, want me to go to. And then suddenly I'm, 
I'm really listening. Because actually, I really want us to be able to go together. And then I go, oh, listen, listen, I'm sorry. I'll try and do better next time. But I just need you to come with me this time, okay? It's really, really important. Do you know that's not an apology? That's not an apology. And she goes, oh, how are you going to communicate? How are you going to improve your communication? And there's silence from me. You see, the longer you go on in a relationship with God or family or a spouse without truly owning your sin, without excusing, um, the harder your heart becomes until your arteries can be so hard that there's no way back. And so actually repentance, the call to repent, is an opportunity that God brings to us. You know, I was preparing this sermon in a cafe, and um, just as I was preparing this part, uh, a song came on, on, on the radio, and it said, um, it's too late to apologize, it's too late, okay? And that's Saul, sorry for my singing, but that's Saul, it's too late for him to apologize because he's had so many opportunities, but his heart is hard. And so there's the question, where are the areas of your life, your relationship with God, what is he calling you to do? What about with relationships with family, with friends, with spouses, where you're defensive, where you not apologize instead of taking responsibility? You know, some of our relationships have real struggles because we're not owning the part that God is calling us to own. And God comes to us today and says, I want to bring you freedom. Will you own what I have called you to? It is grace that God brings us to. So that's Saul. That's how he defends his pride. And now we could leave it there and then we'd uh, just go away feeling, oh, that's a little hard, that's a little heavy. But you know, the, the book of Samuel actually continues. It's, it's an amazingly written book. It continues with my third thing. We've seen how God, breaking God's heart, we've seen how Saul just defends his pride all the time and how it leads just to actually his own downfall. But the third thing is actually how we free our hearts by turning our hearts in true repentance. And here we see um, that in the book of Samuel, there's another king who is also a sinner called King David. And, um, and his sin actually looks way worse on the surface than Saul's does. You know, he commits adultery, then he murders uh, the husband when he can't cover it up. It's actually horrific. I mean, it's really bad. And God's word comes to him again, this time through Nathan the prophet, saying, Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? It's almost exactly what Samuel kind of comes to and says to, to Saul. But instead of defending, instead of just kind of excusing, instead of non-apologies, David faces his sin honestly. And here's what he says. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. Full stop. No excuses. You know, there, there's going to be consequences for him. Consequences, there's going to be death and civil war, Nathan tells him, prophet. But he just doesn't go, hey, please honor me. He doesn't go, like, just please forgive me. He's not just about removing the consequences. He desires to just come clean before God. And, you know, he writes Psalm 51, which is this, this, uh, uh, this confession after this incident with uh, Bathsheba the adultery, after Nathan confronts him, and here's what he says. He says, against you, you only, God, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. 
He says, you will not delight in sacrifice. You see what Saul was doing? You see, he sees where God's heart is. Or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a bird offering. Because actually, the sacrifices of God are actually a broken spirit. They're a broken and contrite heart. And that's what God you don't despise, he says. Can you see how the difference is with Saul? You see, no defensiveness, no blame shifting, no covering up. It's total honesty before a holy God. And he knows God looks at the heart. And he doesn't despise the honesty. He doesn't hold on to his face for it. You know, there was um, a New Zealand cricketer called uh, Lou Vincent who got caught for for match fixing. Uh, It's kind of taking money to lose uh, matches. And uh, Jeremy, if you can put up the slide. Um, And here's what he said when he he got caught and he he confessed his sin. He started like this. My name is Lou Vincent and I am a cheat. Wow, that is a true uh, apology. That's the kind of honesty we need to have in our relationships with God and each other. To my wife, I need to go, hey, I forgot to text you because I was more concerned with what I was doing than I loving you. That is super scary. But that is also freeing because I've got nothing to hide any longer. I'm totally in the light. And that is a place of freedom. You see, true repentance faces its sin honestly and looks in the heart. But secondly, the true repentance is also relational. Notice he says, against you, God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You see, this is the difference between remorse and repentance. You see, remorse grieves and feels bad that it got caught. Repentance grieves the relational damage of sin and seeks to change. Remorse sees sin of breaking a rule, letting yourself down. Repentance knows sin isn't breaking a rule, it's breaking a relationship. David is more concerned about grieving God himself than just failing to be a good Christian. You see, it's relational. But here's the thing about the relationship. Repentance is fueled, not just by out of relational fear, it's actually fueled by relational joy. You see, later on, he goes, restore to me the joy of my salvation. You see, every time you and I are like Saul, are defensive, blame-shifting, dishonest, self-justifying, all those kind of things, it's because we're afraid. We're afraid that the monument we've built to ourselves is going to uh, topple our sense of self-respect, our sense of self-honor, a sense of shame, maybe trampled them, and that statue may be toppled. And we'll be condemned or judged or shamed in our eyes and everyone else's eyes. You see, actually, defensiveness is simply uh, a fruit of people-pleasing. It's a fruit of insecurity, pleasing ourselves and pleasing other people with looking good in front of them. But the gospel, the gospel says the joy of our salvation is this, that when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You are fully known right at the messiest core of your heart. And yet you're fully loved. Do you remember Adam and Eve when they were naked in the garden from their shame and their sin and they they sought to cover themselves up? But you know what happens? God comes to them. He exposes them with a question. He confronts them with their sin. And then he does what they could not do for themselves. He makes coverings for them of animal skin to cover their shame. You see, Christ on the cross was stripped naked. 
He was shamed, humiliated, and condemned, though his heart was fully pleasing to God, so that we might come into this relationship with God and know his voice, not everybody else's, but his voice, which says, you are my precious, you are precious and honored in my sight, and I love you. You know, Alan told me about uh, his high school principal, I think it was called Reverend Howard, um, who was so loved by all the boys in his school because they knew how much Reverend Howard loved them. He really cared about them individually and uh, very practically. So if he ever scolded any of the boys, uh, Alan told me that 18-year-old boys would break down in tears before him. Not from the scolding, but, because, but because they had hurt and disappointed the one they knew who loved them so much. They were afraid of displeasing him. But it wasn't a crippling fear. It was a fear of breaking this treasured relationship that they had. You see, that's how repentance works with God. It's Christ's love for you, the joy of your salvation, of knowing him. That is the fuel. That is the fuel that will make your heart desire to look good in his eyes more than other people's eyes or your own eyes. It's that that when you are confronted by others, when you're criticized or confronted by God or even by your own thoughts, that gives you the security to listen well, to be brutally honest. It's that that makes you afraid, not of other people finding out about your sin, but afraid of justifying your sin because you know it breaks God's heart. And you know his deep love for you. And you don't want that. And it's that desire to come back into that restored relationship, to enjoy God again in communion with him. That is meant to lead us and move us towards God and towards change. You know, it says in, in 2 Corinthians, it says, Worldly sorrow leads to death. The non-apology leads to death. But godly sorrow, which is from the heart, leads to life. And here, the final thing that repentance does, repentance is brutally honest. Repentance is relational, but it's out of relational joy. And repentance moves towards change. You see what David says? He says, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. He's saying repentance is a direction change. Uh, it's not just saying sorry, it's actually turning from you, turning to God and saying, I want to come to you with my life. I want this relationship restored with you. And out of that will flow behavioral change over time. You know, Saul had a pattern of people pleasing. I recently realized that um, I'm the same in certain areas. You know, when I'm, when I'm criticized, when someone says something negative about me or my, I, I fear someone will, I can be defensive, just ask my wife. And as I've identified this one symptom of my heart condition in my life, I realized something. I realized that God, God has actually applied the gospel into a whole load of areas in my life and brought real change in areas of my life. Um, but in this one area, I was still desperately insecure. I still had my monument uh, of pride still there. And I saw others, as I look around, who are more secure in God, enjoying the gospel, and humbly accept criticism, and are able to just be brutally honest, without any defensiveness. 
And I've started praying, God, would you change me in this area? Would you change me? And I started dwelling on and thanking God for the security and the love that I have in him. I don't need the approval of others. I don't need to look good on the outside because what God thinks about me is way more important. And do you know what happens over time? I begin to hate behaving like that. When I start finding the defensiveness coming out of me, I, I go, oh no, I don't want that any longer because I see it actually enslaves me to other people's opinions. And I've gone from justifying it to wanting to please God in this area. And over time, as I see just, uh, I, I'm learning slowly that when those opportunities arise to be defensive and I find it coming out of my mouth, I'm learning how to hold my tongue and reflect on what the other person is saying. I'm learning when to give reasons for my behavior and when actually just to, just to hold off and just to listen. And you know, it's a process, sometimes two step forward, one step back, but here's the thing. The gospel for each one of us is so freeing if we allow it to be applied right into the direct areas of our hearts that it calls each one of us wherever you are in your relationships with God or with others to stop making excuses to stop fearing about what's the impact it's going to make on your face or your own honor because actually in Christ there is a far greater honor that you have and you and I will not enjoy that until we come and come back to God in true repentance honestly relationally but realizing that when you live for his eyes only that is the place of freedom and hope for all of us